Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and it's an honor to be with you here this morning. Uh, back in this room, I know last week we were all together in the auditorium. Is it good to be back in the room with the pews and the stained glass and so forth? Are you excited to be back in here? I am. I'm really excited to be able to be with you this morning and to be able to open God's Word and allow Him to teach us something new uh, together today. Um, as you may know, we're in the middle of a current sermon series called Blueprints. And last week, um, we heard a message from Pastor Jeff, a very important message, um, about the blueprints for our church, the future of our church, and what God is doing within our church. And we essentially, as we began this sermon series, all the weeks of the series have this one kind of intention in mind, and that is that God has created all of us, all of creation, with a blueprint and a design, a way for us to live and a way for us to live in a way that honors him and honors people around us. And so our goal as Christians is essentially to fall underneath that rule and that reign, that leadership, and to submit to him. And so this whole series is about that. And the blueprint that God has given to us has come through his word that teaches us how to live and how to live in relationship to him and relationship to others. It is a lamp unto our feet and it is a light unto our path. It illumines our hearts to the way that God wants for us to live. So if you are here last week, uh, you heard from Pastor Jeff as he did, I believe, an outstanding job in lifting up the fact that at Mount Horeb, we want our foundation of this church to be built on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That is the foundation of our church. Uh, this church is not built on a denomination. It's not built on popular culture. It's not built on a pastor. We want the foundation to be Jesus and Jesus alone. The passage we opened up last week that, Jesus, that Jeff looked at was simply saying this, that Jesus says, a house that is built on this rock that is Christ, the wind and the waves can come, but it will not, it will not knock it down. It will stay in strong. And that's what we look forward to as a church, as God leads us. So we've been discovering all the ways during this series that God has given us blueprints for our lives and the way that we should live. There's a phenomenon that took place around 2005 in 2005, there was a show that came out called Flip This House. Anybody remember the show, Flip This House? Anybody like a self-professing uh, you know, like, like house flipper show watcher? Anybody? Uh, I see all of you, and I'm one of them too. So in 2005, this was the first show of this kind of nature where you would literally sit down and watch this couple or different couples who would go and they would try to find the cheapest house they could find, do as little work as possible, so that in turn they could turn around and sell that house for as much profit as possible. And so we found ourselves as husbands and wives and individuals watching this show on the edge of our seat like, is this house going to make it? Like, will the budget be sufficient for them to get what they're looking for in terms of profit? Will this air conditioner be able to be salvaged? Will this roof be able to be salvaged? And we're waiting to see all of this. And so from these shows, again, this is the first of many shows since that have come out that have had the same kind of, uh, kind of plot line to it. These houses that are purchased, little work as possible to be turned and sold for as much profit as possible. Uh, they've gone on all over the place. And so maybe you as a, as, a, as a person or a couple or a family, you maybe have done a flip of your own. You've found a house and be like, we can do some work here, maybe little as possible, as money as possible, believing we can make something really, really great out of this. The only place that I've seen this kind of really kind of have a bit of a pushback has been in the real estate market. So my wife's a real estate agent, and we have access you know, to watch all kinds of things. I'm one of these geeks that I, I follow like what houses are on sale in Lexington like every single day. Not like I buy any of them. I just look at them every single day. And if you ever watch any of these like, uh, you know, on, online kind of places you can see these homes, there's these ones that come up, and I look at the pictures like, that house is awesome. Like it looks so good. That, that bathroom is beautiful. That kitchen is beautiful. But how many know that when the pictures that you see online, once you get inside the house, are not always what they seem, right? 
You get inside, you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't look like the pictures showed online. They had some nice, you know, a uh, bit of a hue to this. It may look all pretty. And you get inside, it's a little bit different. We've gone into houses, my wife has gone into houses where you turn the dishwasher on and water pours out the bottom of it. And the front of the house looks great, but on the back there's algae growing on the roof and all these different kinds of things. Because sometimes things aren't always what they seem, particularly in the real estate market. But the truth is, it's kind of a truth in all aspects of our lives. But my question is, why? Like, why is that the case when it comes to real estate? It's because some remodelers, some builders, are maybe more concerned with the facade than they are the foundation. They're more concerned with the aesthetics than the internal. They're more concerned with the bottom dollar than they are the quality of the, of the work. And so because of this, what may look good from the outside, once you really begin to look a little bit closer and inspect behind doors, you might find it's not all it was cracked up to be. You see, when we are building a life as a Christian, unfortunately, many of us find ourselves with a similar kind of problem. We get hung up looking the part rather than concentrating on the heart. We get caught up making sure that on the outside we look fresh and good, but on the inside it might not be what it seems. This morning, I want to take a fresh look at the blueprints that God has given to us within the scriptures so that we don't just look like we're well-built on the outside, but internally, on the inside, in our hearts, we truly are built well as we allow God to do his work. This is something that Jesus actually was very concerned about within the scriptures. He brings it up often, and almost every single time the conversation happens with the group of people called the Pharisees. Now, as you know, if you've grown up in the church at all, the Pharisees get a bad rap, right? And Jesus is always in conflict with them. He's always having conversation with them. And if you look at all the times that they have these run-ins, almost always it's over this one particular topic that we're going to talk about today. And if you want to build a really solid life of faith on the foundation of Jesus Christ, we can't just pay attention to the outside. We have to pay attention to the inside, the things that really matter. So the Pharisees, they were a sect, a Jewish sect of people, uh, religious leaders of their time that existed during the second temple period between 516 BC and 70 AD. And so as Jesus comes along, they've been well established. They've been there for a very, very long time. And they were known for their strict adherence to laws and the traditions of Judaism. They protected them at all costs. They were the religious leaders of the day. Oftentimes people were looking to the Pharisees to know how to live and what to do. And yet, throughout the Gospels, as Jesus has encounters with them and addresses them, he does so because though they had all the blueprints for a godly life, somehow they seem to miss it over and over and over again. And so it's easy for us to wag our finger at the Pharisees, like, how did you get it so wrong? But truthfully, this message is not about other people. This message is about us. This message today, just so you know, has been one that has ate my lunch before I've ever brought it to you this morning. I've wrestled with this. I want to be honest about this. I want to allow God to do the work within me that he longs to do in anybody. In particular, what Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about in this passage. And so in Matthew chapter 23, we see one of these run-ins. Now Jesus has had enough of the Pharisees and these teachers of the law, as they're called within the scriptures. And so this chapter, chapter 23, he pronounces upon them seven different woes. So when you hear of someone like maybe uh, saying woe to someone else, oftentimes we think of it maybe in terms of frustration or anger, like woe to you. But the truth is when Jesus does this, he's actually doing it more out of sorrow. 
These seven woes against the Pharisees have to do with the fact that they've missed some of the most important pieces of what it means to be someone who loves God and who loves people. And so Jesus speaks seven over them. I mean, in my house, we speak woes as well. If you're a parent here in the room, maybe you have children, maybe you've spoken woes too. And sometimes out of anger and frustration perhaps, but oftentimes out of sorrow. We say things at our house like this, like, woe to you children for flushing large objects down the toilet. (laughs) Woe to you children for taking nicely stacked clothes and shoving them into drawers so that wrinkles might ensue. Woe to you children for leaving the front door wide open when you exited. Woe to you children for eating Cheetos on the couch and wiping your orange fingertips on the pillows. Those kinds of things. And we go on and on with lots of them. But when we speak this into our house, it's because just like Jesus, he, he had gotten fed up with some of the things that were happening. And at home, we get fed up sometimes too. But just like Jesus, we don't oftentimes get the kind of response that we want. I would love to be able to say, no more Cheetos, and that be it. But somehow Cheetos just keep showing up. And I know Jesus, as he speaks to the Pharisees, would have loved to see the same thing. To speak to the Pharisees and say, listen, you're missing this. But instead, he has to do it over and over and over again. And so Jesus speaks out against them strongly with these seven different condemnations, these seven woes out of sorrow for the state they find themselves in. We're going to look at only two of them today. And here's the first one. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 and 24, here's what Jesus says. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, he says. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. So in Matthew chapter 23, as Jesus begins to speak, he comes out swinging. He says, woe to you, Pharisees. You teachers of the law, and then he calls them hypocrites. Now, in our culture, when someone's called a hypocrite, you know they mean it. We don't just throw these kinds of words around. They mean something. They're weighty. And in Jesus' day, this word is a very weighty word as well. In the Greek, it's hypocrites. It literally means to be an actor or a pretender. It comes from the Greek theater world where you would have an actor would have a mask that they would wear. And to act one way on the outside, but on the inside, they would be a different person. You see, Jesus' frustration seems to be centered around the fact that the Pharisees, their professions did not match their practice. They would say one thing, and yet they would do another thing. And so Jesus backs this up by giving evidence in chapter 23, as he's so frustrated. He, He gives this example by saying, you give a tenth of your spices. Essentially, he's saying, you tithe well. You're willing to give the things that you have, these spices, you give them in the temple. This was something that someone who was a flipper would focus on because these are the kinds of things that are exterior. That as people would come into the temple and see the Pharisees tithing their tenth of this or a tenth of that, they might be like, look at that religious person. They're doing so well. And the Pharisees were very in tune with that kind of thing. They wanted people to be in awe. They wanted to put on a show. And so Jesus says, you're hypocrites. You do one thing, you say one thing, but you then do another. They were good tithers in the temple. Pharisees were very, we paid a lot of a close attention to these kind of endeavors. And there were other things as well. 
In the scriptures, we find out that the Pharisees, they would wear these things called phylacteries. They were little small leather boxes. They would wrap around their foreheads or on their wrists that would have the words of God, the law of God inside of them. So as they would pray out in public, they would see these phylacteries on their body as a reminder of the laws of God. And people would look at them as they would pray and say, look how religious they are. They even wear these things as reminders to themselves. So they tied, they wore phylacteries. The Bible tells us too, they wore these flowing robes. So they'd be the center of attention wherever they went as they would sit in the, the seats of prestigiousness. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 20, verse 46, another time that Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. He says, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. So Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, because you're hypocrites. And here's the key this morning. This woe is not just for the Pharisees then. It's for any and all of us who find ourselves being Pharisaical. It's a warning to us as well. To pay close attention, not just to the external of who we are and the way we live, but the internal life. Who are we on the inside does the inside of the house match the outside? Are they in congruence with one another? You see, these blueprints that we've been given from Scripture by God are the kinds of things that allow us to make sure that we are focused on framework and not just furnishings. Like the things that are really important and not just the things that everyone sees. So are we as concerned about our internal world as we are our external one? Are we willing to back up what we say with the way that we live? Can our integrity and character handle the weight of our professed faith? Are we more concerned with style rather than substance, furnishings over framework? Are we essentially a proverbial flip that might look good on the outside, but if we're really honest, it's more of a flop? Do we have the kind of heart to look inside and recognize this? Because we tithe really well. And we look really good. This is a new coat, by the way. People ask me, and yes, it was a new coat. We read our Bibles. We spend time in prayer. But does it translate to our hearts? Because Jesus says to the Pharisees, listen, you've done some of these things, but you've neglected, he says, the most important things. You've paid attention to the furnishings. People are noticing. But you've neglected the inside, the framework. Jesus says in this passage, he's concerned about three particular frameworks that I want to talk about today. And here's why I want to talk about this, for many different reasons. One, as someone who is a follower of Jesus, these three pieces of framework must be in place before anything else takes place. Otherwise, it's simply an adventure in missing the point. These three must be in place. Secondly, because where we find ourselves as a church, as we together discern and pray about the future of Mount Horeb, these three frameworks must be kept in mind. I don't want to be the kind of person that gets so caught up in the small things that I miss the big things. These must be in place. I'm leaving for Liberia in about, what's today? 15th, 16th something? 15th, thank you. Audience participation. So I leave in like nine days for Liberia for 10 days. No shower, no electricity. It's going to be awesome. And 
We're going because as a church, we have been so generous in giving an amount of money that is helping build 12 homes in Liberia. And so in partnership with some of our uh, Liberian brothers and sisters and pastors over there, we're going to spend time all 10 days doing some uh, nursing stuff. Not me, don't worry. Uh, Some nurses who are coming along, some teachers, we're going to partner with them. And then I'll be a part of uh, a building team while we're there. And so just a couple days ago, we were given the blueprints for the house that we're going to, the houses that we're going to build while we're in Liberia. And with any kind of blueprint, when you look over it, a blueprint is not necessarily meant to show you all the details. Like a blueprint typically doesn't show you where the couch goes or like the color of the walls in the kitchen or the kind of shower curtain in the bathroom. That's for another time. A blueprint is meant to show you like the big picture of what you're constructing to make sure that the foundation is solid and what's going on top of the foundation has the ability to hold the weight of whatever is going to go on it. A blueprint is that kind of thing. And so Jesus wants to make sure that the blueprint that the Pharisees are acting upon are the kind of blueprint that can carry the weight of who they are. The blueprint that we've been given, of course, is through the scriptures. And there are three different things that Jesus mentions as the most important things. These are the floor joists of our life, if you will. They're the interior walls of our lives because everything hangs on them. These three things that Jesus mentions, they're the reason that we tithe in the first place. They're the reason that we pray and we study. They're the reason that we show up on a Sunday morning. It's because of this framework. Jesus says it's justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, you've done all these things, Pharisees, but you've neglected the more important things of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I would propose this morning that these three pieces of framework are essential for each and every one of us as followers of Jesus. They are essential for us as a church as we go forward to see what God has for us next. The first one is the framework of justice. Whenever you hear about justice within the scriptures, to be very, very clear, what justice is about is making all things right. Putting things back to the way they were first intended. Not necessarily the way that I want them, but the way that the original design, the blueprint wants them. And so whenever you see someone who's mistreated within the scriptures, it's, it's a justice issue because that's not the way God intended. Whenever you see something addressed within the scriptures, it's a justice issue because it falls out of line with God's blueprint. So part of the process in selling a home, if you flip a home, is you have to bring in what's called an inspector, Right? An inspector comes in and many of us get really sweaty. We start talking about inspectors because we want to sell something, we want to do it well, but we're afraid of what they're going to find as they come in. But we want a good inspector, don't we? We want somebody who's going to come in, somebody that we can trust that'll look around and say, okay, this thing right here, this is a problem. It's a deviation from the blueprint. It's a, it's a safety issue or it's, it's a function ish, issue. It'll be a problem for you as you go forward. An inspector's job is to come in and point out what is broken so that it can be addressed and it can be fixed. You see, buildings have standards and they have codes and an inspector comes to make sure that a a house is built or repaired to meet those codes. The Bible is the standard that God has given us for our life in every aspect of our life, all of it. It's a blueprint. It's a design for everything. And I want to be very careful. We don't just read the Bible words off the page. We spend time wrestling with and studying the Bible that we might know what God has said to them first then so that we know what he's saying to us now. It's a blueprint for every aspect of our life from recreation to vocation, from sexuality to spirituality, from finances to family. All of it is given to us in his word. Whenever our lives deviate from this original intention, it's considered sin. The Bible literally means a missing of the mark. 
the original design. So racism, human trafficking, poverty, the list could go on and on. We live in a broken world. These are all things that miss the mark in our issues of justice. And Jesus says, you Pharisees, you're so concerned about these other things, looking good and tithing so people notice, but you've mistaken the fact that there are people around you who are in need of grace and mercy. Justice. You've neglected that. What Jesus is talking about is that the Pharisees, they would have upheld so many different laws, yet they would have ignored some of the laws that God had established that were most important. The Pharisees had 613 laws they would strictly abide by. And not just for themselves, they'd make sure everyone else did as well. Don't you love those people? 613 laws that that we must abide by. And it boils down that when Jesus comes along, he says, all of the laws and the prophets, everything that has been written, Jesus says, boils down to two things. Just two of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus says every law hangs on those two things. Do you love God? Does he have rule and reign in your life? Do you love him enough to believe that he's true? Do you love him enough to live in line with him? And then in turn, that will inform the way you love yourself, not with ego, but with a sober self-assessment of value and worth that comes from God so that you can in turn love your neighbor and love them well. Jesus says all of it hangs here. See, the Pharisees could not see the most important part of construction because they were too busy picking out paint colors for the house. And Jesus says you've neglected the more important things. They would pray loud for everyone to hear, but they would ignore the poor. They would memorize scriptures. They would rip people off in the temple. They would give to the temple, but they would reserve the seats of honor only for themselves. And Jesus says you've missed it completely. So I want to be clear here this morning. This first framework that is so important for us is this, justice. Being a part of joining God in his work in the world and making all things right. Restoring it back to his original design. To truly love God is to live under his rule and reign and to love others and the love that comes from him. Justice in the world. Returning to God's blueprint. As we lean into the season of discernment, this is one we have to have as a church. Because justice is important, it's something that God cares about. But it's not more important than other frameworks that Jesus mentions as well. The second framework that Jesus mentions is this, mercy. Mercy. There has to be a framework of justice, but there has to be a framework of mercy. You see, one of the biggest differences between the Pharisees and Jesus is that when the Pharisees saw people within the scriptures, he saw, they saw them with contempt. But when Jesus saw people in the scriptures, he saw them with compassion. Two completely different responses. The Pharisees were frustrated by people, but Jesus loved people. So part of the construction of a life that pleases God is is having this framework as well. Not just thinking with our heads, but thinking with our hearts. Living both with conviction and compassion in the same hands. Years ago, I had the opportunity to lead a group of young adults to the Dominican Republic on a mission trip. And so we had gone down to uh, the North Shore of the Dominican Republic and partnered with a woman named Jonna, Jonna Amlingmeyer. And she was a very, very short lady, probably late 60s, early 70s. But her and her family had dedicated their entire lives to serving the poor and marginalized on the North Shore of the Dominican Republic. 
They went into dumps. They went into squalors. They went everywhere and served everyone they could. So the whole week that we were there, we did everything from feeding the hungry to holding orphans to pouring concrete for the sick. But the most impactful thing we did the entire week was one day we went into downtown and we went to a Dominican prison. I'll never forget walking in with my students from Mount Horeb, complete culture shock, into this prison in the Dominican following this little tiny lady, Jonna. And we walked down the hallway past the guards, and we could see at the very end there were two different prison rooms, each one about 15 by 15, very small, with about 30 to 35 men in each one. Not a bathroom in either one of the rooms. It was some of the worst conditions I've ever seen in my entire life. We walked past the guard. We gave him some food so he would let us come in. It was sweaty. It was stuffy. It was smelly. And then the guard took his keys out, and he opened the gate to where these men were, and our whole group walked inside with them, and they locked the gate behind us. And I remember standing there with these incarcerated individuals who had done who knows what, from petty theft to provide for their family to heinous murders, all there together. And I remember instantly as we got behind the bars, my mind began to race on all the bad things that could possibly happen and how I was going to lose my job as soon as I got home to Lexington. I could just see it, and it was racking my brain. And as we're standing there, Jonna looks at our group and says, now I want you to take hands with these men. We're going to pray with them. And I remember when she gave us this instruction, my first response was, no, we can't. We, we have nothing in common. They, they're here for a reason. They've broken laws, and we're here because we've come to love them. But we've not broken laws. We don't deserve to be in this room in the same space with them. And my heart began to kind of feel these things. And instantly, when we took hands with these men, my heart changed. It melted because all of a sudden I felt a deep mercy, a deep compassion because these people are loved by God, just like we are. As we held hands with these men, as we prayed with them, my heart began to swell. And I found it to be a privilege to hold hands with these men, to feed them, and to offer them the love of Christ. You see, mercy is a framework that we have to have in our lives. As Christians who follow Jesus, as a church, as we go forward, we have to have the framework of justice to make all things right, but we have to have the framework of mercy and compassion because people are loved by God. What I find is that, is that most Christians I come across have a hard time holding conviction and compassion in the same hands. But I don't believe they're mutually exclusive. I think they both can exist. I can't tell you how important this is for our church in this season. Our positions are important as individuals, but they're not more important than our posture. The way we carry ourselves is incredibly important. We must be mindful not to become like the Pharisees who neglect to see the humanity of individuals around us. See, the Pharisees were more committed to the law than they were to love. And mercy is birthed out of humility, honesty, gentleness, patience. And Jesus says, this is a framework that can hold everything else. And Pharisees, you've missed it. As a parent, I see my family as kind of a microcosm of all of this. Because I remember when I first became a dad, my parenting style was essentially this. If I can be bigger and badder, a little bit louder, uh, you know, shock and awe kind of stuff, then my kids will respect me and do what I tell them. Guess what? That doesn't work. 
I tried it for some time, and I've seen families who have tried it for some time, and the problem is it just simply doesn't work. And so my wife and I stumbled upon a guy named Paul David Tripp years ago, maybe four or five years ago. We went to one of his conferences with some friends of ours, and we sat down and listened to him, and he presented a whole new way of understanding parenting that I'd never heard before, and he calls it grace-based parenting. And essentially what he says is, you can't change the heart of your child. Duh. You can't change the heart of your child. You can't make your child do anything unless they, unless they are willing to. And so what we do is every time we bump up against disobedience or dishonesty or disrespect, it's an opportunity for us to remind our children once again, this is something that only God can do in you. And it's a decision you have to make. I can't make it for you. But it's grace. It's mercy. It's compassion. I cannot overstate the change that is made within our family. And here's why it's so important. I think it's because it's an opportunity for our children to experience the mercy that God has given to me. Who am I to receive the mercy of God and not extend it to my kids? Who am I to receive the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the love of God, and not extend it to people around me? But the Bible says this, this mercy and kindness and compassion that God gives to us, it should lead us to repentance. Please hear me, we have rules in our household. It's not like Lord of the Flies or anything. But, but we hold them in such a way that hopefully our children can learn how to live themselves in relationship to compassion and grace, that they might become the kind of people that God wants them to be on their own decision. Two frameworks Jesus says. One, justice. You've neglected justice. Two, you've neglected mercy. And they're both incredibly important and must be there to hold everything up. The third thing Jesus says is this. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness, faithfulness. There's a third framework that I think Jesus offers to the Pharisees and he offers to us today and it's faithfulness. I, I decided I wanted to do a little deeper dive because I hear the word faithfulness all the time but I didn't know what Jesus meant in particular. Like what's the Greek behind this? And guess what the Greek is? Um, faithfulness. <laughs> Turns out that is what Jesus said, faithfulness. But what he's, what he's trying to give to his listeners, the Pharisees and the disciples alike, was this. Faithfulness is the deeply held belief that God is ultimately in control, not us. That we can trust him. That we can have faith in him. The Pharisees seem to put all of their faith in their abilities to cross every T and dot every I. If we can keep all 613 commandments, all 613 laws, then we'll be good. And here's the problem. Nobody can keep all of them. So faith is required to be able to trust God and trust God only, to build a life based on God's blueprints and these frameworks of justice and mercy, it is not possible aside from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and faith in Jesus. We need Jesus, full stop. You know, in Lexington, the average home in Lexington, this is not like a scientific study, okay? It's like, you know, about. Uh, this is like Jeff numbers. So in, in Lexington... <laughs> Don't tell me I said that. Um, in Lexington, the average house in Lexington probably has about 300 pounds of nails in it or some form of, you know, binding agent. Probably 70,000 nails, 300 pounds. So if you think about an average house here in Lexington with that many nails, that means that the walls don't stay together. It doesn't stay close to the foundation. The rafters don't stay on aside from all of these little tiny nails, 70,000 of them. It's the very thing that holds it all together. 
And what Jesus is saying is this justice and this mercy that we have to live with, it's only held together by faithfulness, by faith in God. It's all the little pieces that holds us to the foundation of Christ and allows these frameworks to actually work, that we can live in relationship to him and relationship to others. Faithfulness is how the Christian life is held together. It is a belief that is not just some intellectual exercise, but a transformative surrender to the presence of God in our lives. I've been in full-time church ministry for about 17 years now. I, don't, I know I don't look like it, but it's true. After 17 years of ministry, there are so many individuals, and myself being one of them, that somewhere along the way recognize that I believe in Jesus in my head, but I've never allowed it to travel to my heart. It's not transformed me. It's, it's, not, it's not a rule and reign that exists in my life. It's something that I like to think about or talk about or potentially pull out when it's convenient for me and my political views and so forth. But when it comes to being transformed by the presence of Jesus, that's a whole other thing. And Jesus says, listen, you guys, you tithe well. You look good with the robes. You've done all the stuff. You pray a lot. But you've neglected the greater things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus wasn't finished yet. There were seven woes that he pronounces over them. That was just one. The other one that he says that we're going to look at is Matthew chapter 23, verse 27 through 28. And here's what Jesus says then. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So Jesus continues on with the same idea here. You're, you're hypocrites, actors, pretenders. And he gives an example by saying you're like whitewashed tombs. For us in our culture, we're like, we, what does that mean? But for any Jewish person hearing this at this point in time, you, you would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. Because every year there was a festival called Passover where Jews from all around the world would come to Jerusalem to remember the time that God had rescued Israel out of Egypt when the Spirit of God passed over them by the blood of the Lamb before they were rescued. And so they would celebrate this Passover every single year to remember what God had done. And so every year Jews from all over the place would come to celebrate Passover with one another. And so along the way, if they weren't careful, they might come in contact with a grave of some kind. Because there was different graves along roadsides or out in the countryside, and they were really hard to distinguish. And so what people would do is a month before Passover, they would go out with a mixture of like water and lime and chalk, and they would, they would whitewash all the tombs outside. So that as people came into town, they could avoid those places. And the reason was because if you came in contact with a tomb with any kind of dead body or bones or anything, you were ceremonially unclean for seven days. So all the travel to Passover, you couldn't even be a part of it because you came in contact with a tomb. But luckily, these tombs would look beautiful, bright, gleaming white. So as people came in, they could avoid them to make sure they were not defiled by them. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look really good on the outside, but on the inside, you're a flip. It's a flop. On the inside, you're dead bones. And not just that, but it's not just that you're dead bones, but if someone even comes in contact with you, they may have a problem as well. It's toxic, and it's something that must be dealt with. Jesus says, you need to pay close attention that the inside of the house matches the outside of the house. 
want to be very clear here this morning. This message is not meant to be taken as a weapon as you leave here today. If you do, you're mishandling it. What Jesus has done by giving us this word is to make sure that it is something that we first and foremost apply to ourselves. Are we like a Pharisee ourselves? Do we look really good on the outside, but the inside is completely different? Are we hypocrites? Is there a work that Christ needs to do within us first and foremost? Again, this is important not just because of the season we find ourselves in, but it's important because of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We're meant to be a light to the world, the hope of the world, but we're of no use if we don't have the outside match the inside. So Jesus says, be careful of these things. Don't focus on the small things and neglect the bigger things. Here's the way that the author and pastor, theologian N.T. Wright says it. He says they, the Pharisees, they liked the idea of being rigorous about the Torah because it suited their nationalist ambitions. But when it came to the actual spiritual and moral struggle to make the inside of the house match the outside, they had not even begun. This is why Jesus addresses them. This is why the, the woes are pronounced. In order for us to build a faith that's worth having, we have to have good bones. Not a tomb full of dead ones, but good bones. My wife and I have remodeled now three different homes in 14 years of marriage, and we've made it to 14 years. And every time that we see a house that we want to maybe remodel or buy or move into, we always say the same thing. Maybe you've said this before, too. You look at a house, you're like, man, that house has got what? Got good bones. The house has got, what are we saying when we say that? We're saying that the, the internal structure of this house, the foundation, the most important pieces, these pieces are good. It's good bones. And so therefore, the external work that we might put into the blood, sweat, and tears, the money, the so forth, it's worth it because of the bones that are there. Here's what I'm convinced of this morning. This is a church that has good bones. This is a church that has focused on the most important things. Who I believe have people full, that is full of people who care about justice and mercy and faithfulness and who strive every single day to carry that in a way that honors God and honors people. Are we a perfect church? Absolutely not. In fact, if we were, I would not be here. I had to go find a flawed one. We are a flawed church who is trying as hard as we can to live in line with God's will and way for the world. The blueprint that he's given to us, the best we understand it. But we must be careful not to become Pharisees who see ourselves who have it all right, who care more about the things that we care about than the things that God cares about, who neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But instead, we must be people who are dedicated to all of these things. And when we do, we are people with good bones. After three houses being remodeled, you want to learn a lot about your, your marriage, just tear out all your bathrooms at one time. And you'll see how it goes. I don't, I'm not being prescriptive. I'm being descriptive right now. But we've made it. And, and I think the same thing is, is true for our house that is the church. As we wrestle in this season, as we discern together, as we prayerfully consider what the future holds, we do so believing that if you like the framework that Mount Horb has been, you will like the framework that Mount Horb will be. 
If you've liked the good bones that have existed here before, you will like the good bones that exist afterwards. That's what we're committed to, no matter what it means. And the reason is because of what Jesus ta- or Jeff talked about last week, and Jesus talks about it as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks to it specifically. In chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, I love this passage. He says, consequently, you, meaning you and me, we are no longer foreigners and strangers. We've been invited in by God. We are now fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul says this household of God that we're all a part of, the, the way it has to be formed is on the chief cornerstone, which is Christ. And we don't oftentimes build like this anymore, but in some kind of way of building a masonry sort of building, you would have oftentimes a stone, and that stone would be laid first. It was called the cornerstone. And if that stone was laid well and laid properly, then everything else that you did as you continued to build was aligned with that stone. And it ensured that all the other ones were proper. All the other ones were in line because that was the reference for everything. As a church, as an individual, I want to live my life in the same way. I want Jesus to be the cornerstone of everything. I want to align with him. I want to be able to carry justice. I want to be able to carry mercy. I want to be able to carry faithfulness. And trusting that God will lead us every step of the way. So this morning, I'd like to invite you to pray with me as we do introspection first and foremost. What's going on in here? Let's let God do his work together. Let's pray. God, in humility and in grace and compassion, Father, we come before you this morning inviting you to inspect our lives to look on the outside and to look on the inside, God. To ensure that they are congruent with one another. Protect us, God, for the times where we want to say one thing but do another. We want to hold something up and yet really in the end we mean something else. I pray, God, you would help us to be people who are full of integrity and character. The kinds of people who really love God and who really love ourselves and others. So thank you, Father, for meeting us here today. Thank you, Father, that you have such love and compassion for every single one of us, no matter where you find us. And once again today, God, we give you our lives. We're committed to follow you. You are our cornerstone, Jesus. We love you with our whole hearts. So this morning, we come together as one church, and together we say, amen.